We're going through the Psalms one at a time. We're in Psalm 27. Uh, This morning is printed for you in the worship booklet. Not long ago, I read a story about a famous missionary uh, from the early 19th century. And listen, whenever you hear a story about something a missionary in the early 19th century was up to somewhere in the world, just get ready for a crazy ride, okay? These guys were nuts uh, and often in what they would do. But this one was a British missionary. Uh, His name was Henry Martin. I think he was Anglican, which I suppose would go along with being British, and uh, he was also a known linguist, and he was, uh, he was a translator of the New Testament, and he was known, he, he was the first one to translate the New Testament into Urdu, uh, into Persian, into a language I've never heard of called Judea Persic, which is a, a Jewish variant of the Persian language. And uh, that took, that takes courage to do, not just because of the, the work itself, which is very hard, but also because the one who translates the New Testament into a new language is also usually the one who presents it uh, to a new people or to a new culture as the one who introduces it. And perhaps his most famous act of courage was when after he translated the New Testament into Persian, he knew that he was going to have to uh, present it to the Shah, which is in, in modern-day Iran, uh, in order for it to get any kind of purchase amongst the Persian people. He needed to go to the Shah first. And in order to get company with the Shah, he needed to go to the Shah's vizier, his highest official, first. And so, uh, and, and, and he's done this before, and he has no idea what to expect when he walks into this court uh, full of all of these people, but he had, it's, to read the account, he seems to have some indication that this could be a scary ordeal for him. But off he goes, he goes into the courts of the vizier with two beautiful copies of uh, the New Testament. He, he wrote them himself with exquisite penmanship. Uh, and he walks in, the only foreigner in the room, uh, the only Christian in the room, with little idea of how he would be received. And he goes up to the vizier, and he bows before him, and he lays these copy, these beautiful copies of the New Testament down on the floor in front of the vizier, and he backs away. And in that moment, if there was any doubt in his mind about how he would be received, uh, that there, was, uh, there was a lot of clarity within seconds. Uh, because there was hostility directed toward him almost immediately. Uh, Hostile questions, uh, hostile accusations, hostile threatening gestures. And it was somewhere he was answering a question, somewhere along the way he said that Jesus was the Son of God. People rose up out of their seats and he thought they were about to attack him. He really thought that he was at the end of his life. And in that moment, he looked at the New Testaments, beautiful New Testaments laid out on the floor, and he became worried that they would be trampled. And he took steps, and he picked them up, and he wrapped them in a towel, hoping that even if, even if he was at the end of his life, these, these words of God might be preserved for these people. Courage is a great revealer. 
Courage doesn't just reveal the things that we're afraid of, but they also reveal to us some of the deepest concerns of our hearts. And I tell you that story because we see something similar in David here. David writes this psalm. It's another psalm of David. He writes this psalm and he is in trouble. Uh, He is surrounded by hostility. And yet we also see a remarkable amount of courage despite such difficulty. Let's look together. This is Psalm 27. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. And he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. And I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. O shepherd, brother, friend, our prophet, priest, and king, I pray that you would be with us and among us now. Uh, Holy Spirit, you would put Jesus on display and that our hearts might be stirred to wonder and affection. And I pray that you would teach us something of what it looks like this morning to find a resilient hope and courage in you despite the troubles of life. And that you would help me, your servant, to love these friends well and to honor you with what I say. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you might not be able to identify with a missionary and a linguist from the early 1800s, and I want you to know that's okay. You're in good company in this room. Uh, But I think that you do know what it feels like to feel your need of courage every day. Uh, We could be talking about the courage to face challenges at work, Uh, The courage it requires to leave work and come home for some of us. 
uh, kids in the room, I want you to know is I remember uh, my own childhood, I remember it requiring some measure of courage just to get up and go to school every day. There were people there that I had trouble with, and there were people there that had trouble with me. Uh, and it might be a shocker to you, but what does it look like? What does it look like to keep showing up, to continue facing what's difficulty, difficult in life? Psalm 27 is what we call a psalm of confidence. Uh, it's meant to consider God's help. And our confidence in him, it really is a song about how God helps his people. And I find it to be a very uh, spiritual text, which kind of sounds like a silly thing to say, because in a lot, like all of the Psalms are very, like the whole word of God, the whole counsel of God is very spiritual. But I I say that because uh, it speaks to the profound nature of our relationship with God. It's very interpersonal between us and God, between the prayer and God, between David and God, and the hope is between you and God. It's meant to draw us into a deeper relationship with him, deeper trust, deeper joy, and deeper willingness to serve him with these lives that he's given us. And that is going to take some courage. And so where do we find our courage? That's the question I want to ask this morning. So I want to, what, we want, what I want to do, the way I want to attack this is just to take off a, a couple of simple pieces. It's a radiant prayer. We can't hope to cover it all. But I want to ask two questions. Why is David in need of courage and where does he find it? Why is he in need of courage? Where does he find it? Uh, first, it's pretty clear that David has trouble on his hands. Okay, you see it. I'm looking mostly at verses two and three for this. Uh, who is causing the trouble? What does this trouble look like? Uh, first, who is causing the trouble? He uses a few different words to describe them, and, and we should really take a look at it because when we talk about who causes trouble in our own lives, we don't use these. Maybe we should, but we don't typically use these words. This is in verse two. He calls them evildoers, adversaries, and foes. Uh, and these are all just various ways of saying he's got enemies that are opposing him in, in some specific way. In verse 3, he calls them an army. So it seems to be that some constituency of these enemies of his are growing against him. And this could be a, a, a number of different things. This could be internal unrest among the people of God against King David. We've seen, we've seen a few examples of that uh, in the life of David where that happened. Uh, this could also be a foreign army who's literally outside their gates. Uh, either way, he's concerned about a group of people that are looking to cause him harm. Now, what are they doing to cause him harm? Well, it's clear that there's some violent intent. That's verse 3 indicates perhaps there's a battle at hand, and he's praying before that. An army encamps against me. That's a pretty vivid depiction of all of that. But what's going on in verse 2? We have to remember that this is poetry. And uh, when we read poetry, we have to leave, uh, uh, we have to afford some room for for imagery. But all the same, verse 2 is a verse that can kind of catch us off guard. Uh, It can be pretty hard to read. Uh, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. Uh, what's going on there? Well, one thing he's doing is he is comparing his enemies to wild animals who devour and eat. Okay, they, they, they just, 
uh, consume without thinking, and right now their attention is on him. That's, that's one way of describing what he's describing. Uh, they don't think, they just consume. Uh, but here's something else I think is going on here. That word assail could also be translated slander. Uh, it could be translated accuse. There are several other places in the Bible where uh, it is used just in that way, most notably in Daniel. So if you're familiar with the story of Daniel, you'll know that several times he was falsely accused of something and, uh, and he suffered because of it. Uh, that, that I, I, I think it's likely that just as his trouble certainly includes the violence of war that's against them, it also includes the violence of words. And, uh, and if you look at verse 12, I think that's another kind of supporting argument for that. So, so, that, so there's conflict with people, but also he, he is the object of people's scorn and words. There's unrest amongst the people of God that are being stirred up against them. And I lay all that in front of you. Because, because I think it's important we look at this. Uh, it's very easy to look at the, the unrest that David describes and thinks, that must have been hard. It must have been hard to be a king. But I, I don't know why this applies to me. Like, what, what, is this, what does any of this have to do with me? But I think you do know what it feels like to suffer under the accusations of, of somebody using words against you. I think you do. I think you also know what it feels like to lose security because of the decisions that somebody else is making that may even attack your livelihood. I think you do know what that feels like. Um, and and uh, some people will ask what part of David's life did this happen? Like, when was this written? And that, that's a pretty normal question to ask whenever you look at a Psalm of David. And, the, uh, and we don't, the truth is, we don't know. But, the, but also, uh, it could have happened at any time. Because you see stories like this unfolding in David's life like several different times. Like in the beginning, he was, when he was a boy, he faced off with wild animals. And then later he was in Saul's court and then Saul like accuses him of something he doesn't do and David's on the run again. And then later he's an old man and his own son, Absalom, is sitting at the gate. It's a, the passage says that he was winning the heart's of the people against David, fomenting unrest, and then, led an, uh, and then led a rebellion against his own father, and David's on the run again. Like, whenever you look at David, he's always in trouble. Like, he's always got trouble of some kind. And so what he's teaching us with this prayer that I think we need, <laughs> that I think we need to get our heads around is, is what it looks like to simply go before the Lord in his presence and name the troubles that we're experiencing. You don't need to be ashamed of that. This is surprisingly, it, it sounds like a simple thing, but it is actually surprisingly hard to do. I've got a friend uh, who's a counselor, and he told me that um, whenever he takes on a new client... Uh, that it, it, it always takes a long time to truly uncover what the reason that they came to him in the first place. Like sometimes they know, but most often it takes a lot of time and a lot of work to uncover 
the trouble that they are truly dealing with. Now, why do you think that is? Uh, there, there are several reasons, but one is just uh, simply that there's often so much shame attached to it. Like, we can be ashamed about what troubles us. Uh, I don't think this is peculiar to Christians, but I think we're certainly prone to it. We think that when we experience trouble of any sort, that, that it's because we should have known better. And it's the if-onlys that get us. The if only I had been more responsible. Or if only I had raised my kids the right way. Or if I, only I had seen that tendency and that, that person. Or if only I had worked more hours Or if only I had befriended the right people or gotten the right degree or been smarter with my money. If only I had done everything right, I wouldn't be in this mess. It's the if onlys that get us. They can haunt us. And we can say if only to ourselves and uh, especially harmful is when we say if only to each other. When we hear each other's problems, we might say if only you had just leaving each other feeling alone. You know what I don't see in any of the Psalms? Not one. I don't ever see God begrudge somebody for coming to him with needs, with weaknesses, and all humility. I've never seen, I've never read a place where God throws an if only at his people. God is not an if only God. But he is a God of continuing grace. Who meets us right where we are. You do not need. that. This is not to say there aren't ways we don't contribute to our own troubles. But we don't need to be ashamed about the fact that we have problems in our life. Troubles are normal for God's people. And we're all in need of courage. And the only place where, the only question is, where will we find it? Well, if we ask David, David would say to us that there's only one place where we can find a truly resilient courage that helps us face the troubles in our life. And he locates that squarely in his relationship with the Lord. First of all, because of who God is. Look back at verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? My goodness. Uh, the, The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He's saying that he's showing us, he's really demonstrating before us that there's something so significant, so powerful found within his relationship to the Lord that it gives him some kind of enormous fortitude or courage or strength to face the day. And you might ask, well, well, how do you know this is actually about some kind of interpersonal relationship between David and God? Well, if you look closely at the text, this is just a a, a fun thing I want to point out to you. If you look closely, you might already know this, but I'm going to point it out anyway because it's awesome. Uh, If you look at it, you'll see uh, that the Lord is in all caps. Do you see that? Look down there. It's all caps. You see it twice 
in verse 1, three times in verse 4. It's like he's making a point. Again in verse 7, again in verse 10, you could go on through. He is, he is uh, using that word for the Lord over and over and over again. And when you see it in, in those capital letters, that's not just a, our translation of the Hebrew word for Lord. That is actually a translation of the very personal name that the covenant God gave to his people on the mountain to Moses when they were face to face in Exodus 34. That name is one that he gave his people as a way of telling them, I want you to know me. God is not an impersonal deity. He's actually personally invested in who you are. And that's what David, that's what David is leaning on. He's saying, uh, he's, say, he's recognizing that God is personally invested in his well-being. And there are things that God gives to him through his relationship that only God can give. He, and he names them right at the beginning. The Lord is his light. That, that, that would indicate that the Lord guides him through trouble. The Lord is his salvation. Salvation is a rescuing word. Uh, it means he saves him from trouble. And the Lord is a stronghold, which means he's like a fortress that hides him or protects him from trouble. And you can look at every verse in the rest of the psalm and you will see a, a, like an ongoing, deeper or broader or more radiant expression of the claim that he made in verse one. Here are a few examples. Look at verse five. He will hide me in his shelter. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He's trusting the Lord as his stronghold in that verse. Uh, look at verse six. My head shall be lifted up above my enemies. He's trusting that the Lord rescues him. He's looking to the Lord as his salvation in that verse. Like he, he, he keeps going. Look at verse 11. This one's, this is a fun one. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. What is he doing? He's trusting that the Lord is guiding him through a difficult circumstance. He is his light. Every verse. He's, he's like repeating the same thing over and over and over again in brighter and more beautiful, more radiant, magnificent ways. It's like he's drilling something into his head that he really needs to understand. What is he doing? Well, I would propose to you that this is what it looks like to internalize belief. That he knows something is true and he's saying it to himself. He's using poetry that catches the imagination. And he's saying it to himself over and over again. He presents it to his people and calls them to do the same thing. And he's teaching us what it looks like to grow in a strength of conviction of the things that he knows to be true. It's the internalization of belief. And, and listen, I, 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 I want to get really practical on this point with you. Because I think we need this in general. I think we do. You might be great at this. But I think in general as a church, I think we need this idea in our heads. 
Because I've had so many, and listen, I feel it too, okay? This is not me accusing, this is me calling attention. I'm one of you, but I've had so many conversations over the last couple of years with, you, with different people, that, that, and we all sound like the, the man on the side of the road that's crying out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I mean, that resonates with us, doesn't it? And I've had conversations uh, that many of you have said something like this to me. I believe in Jesus. I believe he is God incarnate. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe these things are true. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe I have salvation in him. I believe those things. I really do. I just don't always feel them (laughs) to the extent that they govern my life, to the extent that they give me peace. Or to the extent that they give me courage. Can you resonate with that? I know I can. And I want you, if you resonate with that, I don't want you to feel alone in that. Many of us do. I want to give you a word of comfort and then I want to give you a word of conviction right before we end here. First, the word of comfort. You know how Jesus responded to the man on the side of the road who cried out, I believe, help my unbelief? With kindness. Uh, the, the man had an ailing son who was in extreme difficulty. And Jesus gave the man what he was asking for. Listen, God's claims and God's promises over you are true. They are absolute and they are unchanging. And they depend on the strength of the sacrifice that was made on your behalf, not on the strength of your conviction. And so you can rest in that. You might feel like you're weak in your belief, that your disposition towards Jesus might feel like a roller coaster, you know, that's going up and down. But God's disposition toward you as his people, he gave you his name, he gave you his words, he wants you to know him, he gave you Jesus. His disposition toward you is unchanging. Your gaze might waver, but Jesus' gaze toward you never wavers. He loves you. And the word of conviction is really another word of comfort, okay? Because there are ways, there really are ways that we can participate in this internalization of belief. I, I think this is something that David is showing for us. David is, uh, is giving us an example of what it looks like to have a heart. He's worked hard at this and cultivated this over time. And this psalm is demonstrating to us uh, uh, what it looks like in a sweet way. And so I just want to ask you, to evaluate your habits. Like nothing, uh, nothing betrays the concerns of our heart like our habits do. Our habits reveal the things that we care about. And so I just want to ask you uh, to ask a few simple questions of yourself, really practically. And if you're married or if you're in a family, it's something you can talk about together. But what is like the first thing you do when you get up? What are the rhythms of your life? What's the first thing you do when you get up, midday, or maybe right before you go to bed? And how are those habits reflecting like habits of spiritual formation or growing in the faith? Like, what does that look like for you? What's the first thing you do? What's the last thing you do? Like, at least just think about it 
and, say, and, and ask the question, is this helping me grow in my convictions or is this making me weaker? I was talking about this. Let me give you a few examples. I was talking about this with a friend of mine not too long ago. And she told me that I loved this. Just as a pastor, I loved hearing this. She told me that she, uh, she likes to get up before everybody, uh, before this, like everybody else does. And she likes to just go out to her front porch and before the city wakes up. And she looks out and she stands there in quiet and stillness before she looks at email or social media or anything else that is seeking to make a claim about who she is. The first thing she does is she stands on the porch in quiet for an extended time and just reminds herself who she is in Jesus. What's she doing? She's like placing her faith as the most central thing in her heart and allowing the rest of her day to operate out of that, right? I've got another friend. He's got a, and that might not work for you. You might have family rhythms that don't allow for that. That's okay. I'm just asking you to ask the question. I've got another friend. He works in an office, and apparently his office gets quiet. I think that must be really nice. Uh, but he uh, he enjoys a certain time every day where he shuts his computer down. And he turns his phone off, and uh, and he sits and he evaluates. He reads his Bible. He evaluates the concerns of his heart, and he prays through them. And he looks forward to that every day. He just takes that break, and that's what he does. One thing that's been helpful for me, I, I, uh, I, I feel like um, it's really helpful for me to pray with people. Sometimes praying alone can be hard for me. I'll just confess that. Uh, but it, I, this was at an, in another city at another time, but I had a friend of mine, and we used to walk together. And so we would just walk and talk about what was the what the concerns of our heart were, and then we'd pray together. And uh, to everybody else, it just looked like two dudes going on a walk, which might have, might have been weird in that neighborhood. But to us, what, were, what we were doing, we were learning to believe together. And, and I can't encourage, like, I really want you to think about these things. What's it going to look like for you? I ask you to take that seriously. And it occurs to me that when we talk about this, we're not just talking about habits of spiritual formation. Whenever we talk about habits of spiritual formation, we're really talking about habits of rest. I think you are, we are a people in deep need of rest. Uh, Sometimes we marvel at our work habits, but what are our rest habits? Um, Think about it. You may be surprised to hear that Jesus was someone who knew his need of rest. That the most powerful, perfect man in all of life needed rest. And he found that rest in the quiet and peaceful places where he could go to be with his father. Several times in the Gospels, he made sure to make time to get away. And if you look at his ministry, you can see why. Just... Look at Mark chapter 6 at some point and look at all of the things that were going on. He was rejected by his own hometown. I mean, that had to hurt. Uh, He trained up and sent out his disciples and then they came back to him to tell him all that happened. He gets news that John the Baptist was killed and the passage says that people were coming and going all the time and they had no leisure even to eat. And so what does Jesus do? He says, come away with me by yourselves and rest a while. That's what they needed. 
And I think that's what you need to. Jesus loves you. His perfect love casts out fear. Give yourself to that love and rest. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, you are uh, the redeemer of our lives. You're the one that looks to us with very personal interests. Lord Jesus, you are our king, the king who gave himself to us, the object of our greatest affections. And Holy Spirit, you speak to us in profound ways, in ways we know, in ways we don't even understand. And so I pray that you would sink the truths of these things into us in ways we need to hear them. As these things, as we turn our attention toward the meal, in Jesus' name, amen.